Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a cool place to get great, creative, comfortable, and very colorful socks. Go to getbombas.com weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This week, we're talking about expectations. The Last Guardian just went gold after approximately, you know, two or three lifetimes. Nintendo just revealed its really kinky new console, and Red Dead Redemption will have a sequel. It has been a bananas news week, and it seems centered around expectations and what we feel about games before they come out. So... Rob, I, I don't know if you if you had a lot of thoughts about The Last Guardian, if that's something you're super looking forward to, or were at one point. So, The Last Guardian is actually something... I'm more interested in the anticipation around The Last Guardian than I am in the game. Um, because, like, what's so interesting is from, like, the first time they showed anything of this game, which was basically just character art, right? Like, for the longest yeah. time, like, what we knew was there's going to be some, like, cute little griffin thing. Uh, and that like it was going to be about a child and 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 a, and a cute little griffin friend uh, and their adventures together. And that's basically all we knew, right? Like it was, and and what you'd say was, well, it's it, it's from the, the you know the team Ico, uh, so so how could it not be? How could it not be awesome? Uh, but it, it was sort of really amazing to see like how instantly this became like a hotly anticipated title uh, that couldn't help but be amazing. If they would just make it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for some reason, like, maybe it's because they popped up concurrently, but the, the, this and uh, Beyond Good and Evil 2 are sort of tied up in my head as well in, in terms of things that, like, people are just convinced will be amazing uh, <laughs> if they ever actually get made. Uh, and without too many questions as to what's taking so long and, and why is this turning into such a troubled process. Uh, Beyond Good and Evil 2, I think the answer is a, a lot more straightforward, right? Uh, it's it's a game without really a corporate constituency. Uh, it's a, it's a yeah. follow-up to cult hit, so that's going to be harder to sell. The Last Guardian, though, uh, is just this, you know, it's, it's really buy-in to buy-in for, for fans of the developer. Uh, and now I'm sort of, I am worried for people who've sort of set their caps on uh, The Last Guardian these last years. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like the longer a game is in development, the more impossible it is to sort of meet its expectations. Uh, because, of course, that's how the human brain works, right? We're always expecting bigger and badder and more badass, whatever the Cliffy B quote is. Bigger, better, more badass things. The longer it sort of gestates in our in our little minds. I, you know... I feel like I, I can't help but bring up like something like Duke Nukem Forever in one of these discussions where it's like that game got made and unmade so many times and then finally became like a pretty meh sort of product because it was no longer it was no longer the world of Duke Nukem by the time it was sort of made. And I and I worry a little bit that it will be no longer the world of Shadow the Col of the Colossus. You know, which which came out what eleven years ago now? At this point, it was sort of a you know the team eco game that was you know the shining, beautiful, wonderful, last incredible masterpiece of the PS2, and and 
it was very much of a time and a place uh, when, you know, it was kind of before indie games, I felt like, had their their stamp. And so, you know, it was a game with a, at least somewhat mm. of a budget, but but it, you know, very much felt like a, a an auteur's work or, or, or like, you know, something you would you would rarely see in the AAA space at this point. And now we're in a world where a whole lot of people have made these games that are very you know, personal in a way, or even if they're larger scale, they, they feel a little more personal, made by a smaller team. You know, I'm thinking of the sort of mid-tier indie at this point, you know, a, a Firewatch or even a Witness or, or something like that, you know, made by a team of a, you know, couple, a dozen people or a couple dozen people. And now here we have this this sort of relic of an era of bigger developers making weird games, <laughs> weird and like, you know, maybe you might even say semi-personal games. And here it is. It's, it sure looks like a game from that time, you know, it sure looks like a, a, you know, sort of PS2, maybe early PS3 era action adventure game. And I don't know, I don't know if, if time has passed it by. That's what I'm most worried about. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's some, that's some really important context and is something that I I certainly tend to forget is that, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis that like, Shadow of the Colossus kind of enjoys this uh, the, the status in part because it was uh, not only like sort of the mythic like mid tier game, but yeah. also it was a break from like AAA uh, homogeneity, but it predated uh, the diversity we, we we now sort of take for granted. Uh, that's that's an angle I hadn't, hadn't really thought of. Uh, but I think it's I think it's a really important thing to to bear in mind because yeah this is uh, this is one of those cases where um, uh, what was it Alexis Kennedy said on on the show a couple weeks ago right where people want that people want the experience of playing the thing for the first time yes, uh, yes. and this is a this is a chance to do that right it's 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 another game from this developer and it can it's it's it's, it's not a sequel. Uh, so here's a chance for another magical first time encounter, um, but you know the other the other problem it has is it just it has been in in development for for absolute ages, and do ideas that started out like fresh and original back then do they do they travel well uh, when when you when you push them back like five years? Um, I, I'm, I'm less confident, right? Like. You know, I look at I look at like sort of what we know about the last Guardian, and I sort of think that uh, like Brothers uh, ate its lunch, and that was yes. that was like four yes. years ago, man. It was, yeah, absolutely, and and that was made by fewer people on a much lower <coughs> budget, and that's sort of how that uh, tier of game is made now, and that allows those games to be made at a faster rate and uh, be a little weirder and a little more experimental, you know. Uh, maybe not experimental. Maybe that's maybe not the right word, but to be a little weirder and to be a little more fringe because they're, you know, they're, they're taking fewer risks in, in terms of money. So I, I, I'm a little scared, but, you know, at the same time, I, I still, I still, you know, I loved Shadow of the Colossus. It was a, a game I played a hell of a lot of. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed sort of what that game was giving me, even though even at the time, even in 2005, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't like next gen graphics, mind blowingly, you know, super hyper modern. Like it, it had some jank to it, even at the time. Uh, and I'm willing to forgive that if the experience itself is like transcendent and awesome, and the puzzles are so well designed, and you know, you have this 
really cool creature and you have a good relationship with them. I guess I'm I'm also worried because what we've seen of it lately hasn't been all that inspiring. It, it's been kind of like, okay, we, we've got a, a kind of cool puzzle game with a you know, cool character, creature, but it's that's kind of all <clears throat> it is. And uh, yeah, I don't uh, I don't know. Well, this is, this <laughs> I'm is setting my of... expectations low because of that as well as the the sort of historical context of it. I mean, this is this is sort of why the the whole expectations game is is so double edged, right? Like, yeah. what if the game really is just a a, a really good uh, sort of like puzzle, you know, puzzle plat- platformer, uh, basically? Uh, what what if basically is that, and it's really really good and really really affecting, and that's wonderful. But then it has problems of these expectations because, like, there just wasn't enough enough sizzle uh, in, yeah. in the marketing, right? <laughs> and but the problem is, like, this is here at the end of 2016. Like, man, have we seen the backlash that happens if you do play the expectations game and you sort <laughs> yeah. of fan those, right? So it's this, <clears throat> it's this really weird expectations. Is this really weird thing that that has to both be managed, but also also fanned. And if you go too far one way or the other. Um, you either build no hype around the game or a lot of concerns about like it, it not seeming new and fresh. And that can that I think absolutely can affect um, the reception the game gets, not just from its audience, but but even from critics to an extent, right? Because we all sort of do have some expectations that are shaped. Like, what are we getting in this box when I unwrap it? And it can sometimes be tough to move from like the thing you think you thought you were getting uh, to the thing you got, right? Like, I think Brutal Legend is, like, the quintessential example of that. Uh, it was like, yeah. oh, it was going to be a wacky action game about uh, heavy metal. That's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And it turns out to be... An RTS. Of, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like the, the new Herzog's Vi. Like, that's that's yeah. really weird. Uh, and I, the game sort of got killed over that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, like, expectations like play this 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 really uh th- this really important role but at the same time i feel like that whole game the whole expectations game is is sometimes like like really responsible for the predicament of trying to do like really creative work in yeah. in games right with any kind of budget yeah and that's what you know this is why PR people, this is where they earn their paycheck, right? This is where this is where a really good PR person or really good marketing person is like, all right, here's what's cool. Here's where we need to manage expectations. Here's where we need to draw attention. Here's where, we, you know, like it, it, that's a, a precarious and difficult job. And I, this is where I also feel very, very powerfully sympathetic towards, you know, smaller indies that don't have like PR. It's like, holy shit, how do you... How do you do that and also make a game? Like, that's that's crazy to me on one level. Uh, But, I, you know, I feel like after the No Man's Sky stuff, uh, I don't know what's up with Sony PR a a little bit. Like, (laughs) I don't know... uh, I don't know how well they're they're doing with managing expectations these days. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but it's... I haven't seen, you know, I've seen commercials for The Last Guardian, certainly. I've seen, you know, ads on buses and things. Started seeing that, you know, the last couple of months. And I'm like, oh, yeah. All right, cool. I guess it's real now. Um, but they're definitely going after, it seems like, sort of the, the mystery angle. Like, whoa, there's a weird creature. 
you know, and that's kind of it. And maybe, maybe that's the way to go with this. Maybe that, you know, they're, they're wanting to evoke the feeling of mystery and curiosity and all these heady emotions. And, you know, to be honest, I, I want the game to be great. I, I love this kind of game, you know, puzzle yeah. platformer with weird characters. Like it, that's, yeah, like sign me up. Of course, I, I would love for it to be great. And I don't mind if it's a little janky, if it does deliver on, you know, just being a good game, a good, well-designed game. I, I just fear for, I fear for any game that's been in development for so long that it's probably been made and thrown out and made again. I, I fear a little bit when, when something like that has happened. Yeah, I um, also you made a point there about they're sort of selling the mystery and... yeah. That can go. That can backfire. Well, you know? yeah. There, there's that, but then there's also, I think, this this problem that it sort of feels like, in general, now marketing is all about removing mystery. Like, I don't think, sure. like, I don't think people are mistaken when they complain about the fact that, like, a lot of times, by the time the third trailer comes out for like a really anticipated, like, sort of nerd targeted movie, <laughs> yeah, like it's basically now just spelling out the plot. Like, here's what you're getting. Yeah. And that seems to have largely been successful, right? Like, you don't leave a whole lot of doubt about, like, what you're sitting, what people are sitting down for. But that also means, like, how do you make a game that is about sort of, like, dis- like sense of discovery, right? Like, how, yeah. and, and then how do you, how do you, how do you market that? Uh, and that I find uh, kind of, like, like, okay, could could something like Psycho exist in today's huh. or succeed in today's media landscape, right? Like, because, you know, the famous thing about Psycho is is that, and I sort of wonder how true this was even at the time, right? Because that is true, mm. like, how long before people, that, for that first wave of audiences thought they were getting an Alfred Hitchcock suspense thriller about a criminal on the run. Yeah. Uh, it was well known. Uh, was it Janet Lee? Yes, it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they think that it's about this this well known actress and, and her uh, her 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 escape from the law, uh, and that's the movie they think they're getting. And and then it's it's actually about the aftermath of her murder and uh, the explore the, this weird psychodrama unfolding at this uh, at this motel. I sort of wonder: were audiences baffled by that when that film came out, or were the first the very first audiences baffled by it, and then like. Within three days, everyone kind of knew what the secret was. I don't know, yeah. uh, but I, I definitely wonder whether you could even create something like that that pulls a bait and switch on you uh, anymore, where you could like play with audience expectations that way. I'm not sure you can. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and that really sucks <laughs> because <laughs> you know sometimes it's it's the most wonderful thing in the world to be pleasantly surprised. Anyway, you know sometimes they're surprised by how poor something is, but like. Think about the last time you were really surprised by a movie or a game or, or something. I mean, I suppose I was surprised by Mad Max because I, I hadn't done a whole lot of watching of trailers and such before going in. And, and you know, I kind of didn't know that it was going to kind of have this wonderful, like, chase movie core, but with this delicious, you know, candy coating of feminism. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't know that going in. So I was very pleasantly surprised. But I can't think of anything else in the last couple of years, with that very stark and wonderful exception that, you know, that I had that experience with 
Have you like had something that was amazing and surprising recently? Um, ooh, I'm trying to think here. There's very few cases. I think Mad Max is yeah. actually a, a, a really good pull there, because uh, that was but that was kind of easy because what you what they were selling was uh, violence and cars and right. some crazy <laughs> yeah. and 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 so, crazy, uh, crazy visual style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so. And and so you just sort of assume that it's going to be about like the Tom Hardy character, yeah. and his uh, friends and foils uh, in this in this <laughs> journey, and, and what you get is something uh, completely different. Uh, as far as as things that, I mean, not not really, right? Like, yeah. I think there are some movies that can confound your expectations uh, sure. really effectively, like. I think the last thing that really surprised me, <clears throat> this is this is not, this is not a new thing, and and it's it's kind of a bad example because certainly not a main. It was not a thing targeting the mainstream mainstream audiences, but it was this movie mm-hmm. um, Sugar, okay. uh, which is yeah. about uh, a I want to say Dominican uh, baseball prospect mm-hmm. and his journey from uh, sort of the farm leagues in uh, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, into the the U.S. system, and then his sort of rise to the majors. Sure. Except that's the movie you think you're getting, <laughs> and then it turns into something really, really different. It turns into an immigration story uh, okay. in, in a lot yeah. of ways. And the thing is, it checks a lot of sports movie boxes in some ways to about the halfway point, and then. It starts going left every time you think it's going to go right, nice. uh, which was really cool. But like that, that's a different thing. Uh, that's yeah. that's not. It, it it didn't. It wasn't a complete tonal shift. Uh, yeah. So I I don't know that there's a lot of things that you can that you can pull off uh, putting uh, in a in a black box. But but here's here's a question for you. Yeah. Um. It, it's tough for me to project back back that far. But I kind of feel like. Uh, Red Dead Redemption yeah. was also a bit of a surprise, uh, which which is weird for me to say because because my problem with that game is it's still a dumb fucking Hauser game uh, in a lot of ways. Um, like, sure. I'm sorry, I just I have so little patience for <laughs> it's like if you take Quentin Tarantino but without any sense of like the subversiveness or like the the ways that uh like american film can also work as critique um that's that's kind of my my issue with 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 hauser stuff and 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 red dead redemption definitely uh pushes a lot of those buttons and yet i still feel like that was a game that caught a lot of people by surprise uh in in part because it was such a departure from uh what was the revolver um, yes, yes, yes. The I I always forget it was part of a series. Right. I always forget that. Yeah, and and I think that most people probably do because it was so different. Yeah. Oh my god! I you know to my shame, I've still never played it. To be honest, like I I it's one of the only that and Bully are the two sort of big. You know, I played all yeah. the GTAs. I played the shit out of La Noir. I liked it despite it being eighty percent terrible. It was that twenty percent that kept me in. Um. Yeah, and I've actually never played Red Dead Redemption. So, so sort of this week when, you know, everybody was all excited about the teaser, the, like, you know, 
45 second teaser that went up for it and everybody's like holy shit i was kind of like yeah it looks awesome i never played the, the first one <laughs> uh so my expectations are literally nothing and maybe it's better that way uh for that game and, and god only knows when it's actually coming out so that's okay too i mean they're saying right. i believe they're saying you know next year but uh, you know well, we'll see if it's if it's next year or, or three years from now and and yeah, I don't know. I, I um, oh God, I, I wanted to also touch on as while we're talking about expectations, I did want to touch on Nintendo's new console. Rob, I woke up the other day. I, I'm in Seattle right now, and right. <laughs> I saw that Nintendo had finally announced. You know, everybody was calling it the NX. Uh, they finally announced their new console, and it's called the Switch. And I. I laughed. I thought we were getting it. bait. I I really was like, what? <laughs> no, like, come come on, really? Pokemon Pokemon S is coming out. Literally, it's Pokemon Sun and Moon. So that's coming that's out. Not, that's not month. what that sounds like, Danielle. You know, I'm just Pokemon saying. Pokemon S and M. I was like, wow, it's the new era, new audiences. I feel like Nintendo's naming things in a not child friendly fashion. That's all I'm saying. Um, but it looks, it actually looks really cool. It's, it's a, you know, it's a little console that also has, you know, like the Wii U, but unlike the Wii U, it's completely able to be played on its own without sort of a TV and its little base unit. And it has two little sort of halves of a controller that you can play simple games with, uh, sort of as it's taken, you know, one in one hand, one in the other hand, or a more complicated game like, you know, the new Zelda game that everybody's excited about, Breath of the Wild. Uh, that, you know, you, you'll use the full controller <laughs> for something like that. It seems really cool. I'm super down with the idea of having something I can have on my TV or, you know, run around with. Um, I do that with my Wii U all the time. I constantly will play, you know, whatever on the TV and then kind of take it to bed and, like, you know, play, like, something smaller. Uh, I know Patricia was playing, like, uh, Earthbound for, you know, a long time, sort of in bed. That was, like, her thing she was doing. And it was like, this is great. This is really cozy. And we can also play Splatoon, you know, when we feel like it on the TV. Uh, and this is taking that a step further, and I think that's great. And even though I'm, uh, you know, I, st I still wish we had a one-console future. <laughs> but, like, Nintendo, I guess, will always be the the one for me that I'll probably buy kind of no matter what. Because, yeah, know, I'm one of those. But... It, it does seem cool. And, and, you know, it was just a teaser. It was just a, sh a short trailer that was sort of showing, you know, some of the some of the things you can do with it. It sort of shows the, you know, the young dude playing at home, playing Zelda at home. And then he, you know, gets on an on an airplane, you know, as he's waiting at the airport, he's playing it. And it gets on the airplane and he, you know, he put a little display up and like play it, you know, on a tray on the airplane. And that's kind of like, yeah, that's the perfect use case for something like this. That's... That's why people still, I feel like that's why people our age anyway, still have a, you know, a 3DS or, or a Vita. It's kind of like for travel at this point, you know. So it seems to be hitting those, you know, those spots. And I'm kind of excited for it. I'm just very amused that it's called the Switch. I can't help it. I'm sort of amazed that it's difficult to talk about Nintendo without dipping into like Nintendo cliches. Sure. So I'm, I'm aware of that, and I'm, I'm, I'm right on the precipice of it, and I'm having to go over this edge anyway. Yeah, uh, that's okay. <laughs> we're talking about expectations. Yeah. This sure as shit was not what I was expecting. Really? Um, 
real like and I don't mean that in the in one way or the other. It's just Sure, sure. We're making a giant ass You were expecting ass a top handheld. or a bottom. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, just we're making a giant ass handheld. It seems yeah. a little crazy. And that's kind of what they're doing, right? It's like it's a portable mm-hmm. console that you carry with you and yeah, I don't know. That it just seems it seems really weird to me. Um and and kind of exciting uh in a lot yeah. of ways too. But I think this is an interesting case where expectations I think were were a little bit like okay so for a long time there was there was pretty, there was a lot of evidence suggesting that Nintendo was going like focusing on mobile again. Yeah. And then they sort of played footsie with Apple and like it sort of felt like maybe they were just maybe they maybe they were just about to like cash in their chips, right? And just sort of screw it, we made a phone. Enjoy your phone, guys. It's the new it's the NX. <laughs> yeah. But I wasn't expecting uh something like this where it's kind of I feel like there's a lot of conventional wisdom saying that like portable gaming is largely controlled by the phone now entirely. People don't want anything but games on their phone. Uh, and the alternative for other forms of gaming is like PC and, and console, uh, you know, ports. Yeah. Uh, that, can, that can sort of be played in the living room of the office. And Nintendo is kind of once again staking its, its, its generational bet on this like third way option. Uh, which is, but but it's a really appealing one, right? Because like it's it, it sort of speaks to me in that there's a lot of times like I want to play a game when I'm traveling, but like I want a real game, damn it, like a, a, yeah. not like a phone game. I want like the experience I have uh, playing a game in my office, but without having to shell out for like some sort of ridiculous gaming laptop, uh, which never and having it be promise. you know a size that you can actually take on a shitty airplane where you don't have any room at all like i can barely have my laptop on a you know on a, <laughs> on a tray table in an airplane at this point like that's right. how crazy uh, no. it is so no, something like, kind of you know smaller and like you know manageable as well do you think um but but here's the question do you, do you like one do you think uh expectations um are helped by the fact that like the wii u kind of was a gutter ball uh oh, God. that yeah you know, or do you think that narrative around Nintendo is being a little bit wounded right now? Do you think that ends up making people feel a little skittish about the uh, about the Switch? I mean, I honestly wonder if uh, if people are seeing this as well. This is kind of the Wii U plus the 3DS. Like it, this is its weird baby, and like you know, they're almost consolidating their console and and handheld markets. I, I don't think necessarily that they are doing that, but I wonder if that's sort of what they want people to think. That like, oh, this isn't just the new Wii U, it's also the new 3DS, so it's awesome, and everybody will buy one. Um, <laughs> uh, so I wonder if that's that's part of this. I also wonder if, I don't know, I you know, I'm also somebody who loved the Wii U and is sad that it didn't do well and thinks it had, like, some, some of the best games of this generation were on the Wii U. And I still will tell people, like, if you can only buy one console, PC and Wii U, I mean, I won't say that now, now that we know it's kind of on the outs, but I, I was saying that for a long time, feeling like, I don't, I don't care. It still has some of the best stuff. So so I don't know. I, I really don't know if the Wii U being a, a disaster, sadly, a very, you know, sadly a disaster because it deserves success. 
I don't know if that's going to help it or hurt it, but they're certainly, they're staying away from the Wii branding. They're, you know, this isn't the Wii U 2, which it totally could have been. <laughs> well, you know, going with Nintendo's sort of naming scheme. I mean, it's the Switch. They're switching it up, man. Yeah, uh, it's... God bless, it's, you know. It's a strong name. <laughs> it's, it's a name, for sure. It's, it's sure a name. Wow, I, I'm excited for it. I, I won't lie. I... And I'm going to be that girl who buys every damn Nintendo console because I really like the games they make. I, I, you know, and I'm fine with having, you know, the 12 core games on that system and that's it. And I, w- I, I wish I didn't have to buy another device for it, but I will for, for kind of those games. Because they always end up sort of on my, uh, on my list of, of favorites or favorite things I've played, you know, sort well, of in that time. So... I think, what's, I think what's exciting about this, too, is, like, it's a possibility for a different format of gaming, right? Like, everything yeah. is moving towards, like, oh, if you play with other people, you're playing online, and sort of this this one experience that you have over and over again. It almost doesn't matter what platform you're playing it on, because uh, yeah. it's sort of, it, it, it's all sort of based on the same assumptions, the, the same, like, use cases, uh, as it were. This is different, you know? And this is, this is, this is a little weird and wonky, <laughs> and... I think could be really, really cool. Uh, one thing I'm not clear on. <clears throat> yeah. So saying that you and I are hanging out and we've both got our switches with us. <laughs> what magic can we make happen with our switches? Oh, God, I have no idea. Okay. I, don't, I don't know if they've gone into that yet. I, like, I'm having visions of that Game Boy Link cable. I, d- I doubt that, you know, yeah. it can't be that bad. But... <laughs> Um, you know, there've been a lot of jokes about like friend codes and safe words, uh, lately. And I feel like that's an appropriate <laughs> thing to joke about when you named it a switch. Um, I'm sure you're going to be able to share things because, you know, I mean, Nintendo sure has a history of being able to share things in the real world of being able to kind of go to a place and hang out with people and trade your Pokemon or go to a place and hang out with people and, and sort of, you know, do crossplay or whatever it's called the sort of the the old ds that had that the sort of remote play uh, functionality that it had so i i would be willing to bet based on history that we'd be able to play our switches together uh but i i don't think they've said much about that yet i could be wrong yeah i mean that's that's certainly the the tempting part is that if you could like if like it looks to me like early reporting suggests that like there is some sort of local multiplayer component to all of this. Yeah. But what the real the, the, the real deal breaker is gonna be like, is that real local multiplayer or is it you know, is everyone basically still talking to like the Nintendo network? Oh and yeah. then that's talking back to their machines. Cause then then it's kind of broken, right? Then cause then you yeah. you don't really get the benefits of being able to like round up your friends and all play together. But if we can actually be in the same room and like playing like you know zero latency, uh, you know Mario Kart or or Smash or something like that opens up a lot of really cool possibilities. Yeah. Uh, because the, you know the, one of the problems in um, not not a problem, but so when when I was writing a, a preview of Lawbreakers for Rock Paper Shotgun earlier this year, uh, I was talking about like in my preview. It was a great event. It was awesome. And, like, I really enjoyed playing that game. And it was really cool. And there was a lot of, like, 
genuinely like gripping matches that we played. But in my piece, I was like, I couldn't tell you if that's because of the game or because like it's been a long time since I've like done land gaming. And sure. was it just sort of a return to that old magic? And uh, a developer at, at, at Psyonix actually reached out and was like, oh no, it's it's totally like the LAN effect is something that like developers like have to account for uh, because oh. you're going to get different feedback uh, based yeah. on people testing it in like a LAN environment uh, versus the people who are going to be playing it like out in the wild online with no one around them. And that's a very different environment. And what sort of excites me here is... Um, that you could sort of now create a LAN environment without it being this rare thing that like only happens at bring your own computer stations at conventions or at really hard to set up LAN parties um, like that. Or colleges or yeah, you know, exactly. having the magical dorm room, you know, where the person who has the, the perfect setup. Yeah. 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 No, then it's just like you, me and a couple friends run to each other at a con or something. We go back to someone's room and uh, we switch it up. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say, but, <laughs> get your switches ready. But like <laughs> that is that is intensely exciting. But the thing that I wonder about is nobody does nobody allows for that sort of configuration anymore because it seems to be a security hole. Nobody yeah. does that. Everyone's like, no, you got to authentic. You've got to handshake with our network and route everything through there. So that's that's really nerve wracking because um, I think that could be. Like I, I, I think that's sort of a thing where if it's if it's sort of a true land, like that, that's an amazing thing they've just created. If it's not, <laughs> then you're actually going to be actively pissing people off when they try to do the thing that the switch seems to promise. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Nintendo doesn't always have the greatest track record with its uh, online services as well, so. God, I just hope they figure that out. They they must know at this point, right? That, that that's going to be pretty important for this this new console, this new baby to be successful. I'm well, hoping, I mean, I I'm I don't always do. know what Nintendo knows is going to be important. That's, <laughs> that's uh, if, if we're talking about expectations, I think where I would leave <laughs> this discussion is that my expectations of Nintendo really isolating and figuring out what people want is kind of a crapshoot. Like yeah. sometimes they hit the mark. <laughs> Sometimes they miss, but I don't think they've like got the formula down. I think they just have crazy ideas. Some hit, some don't. Yeah. God bless them. Well, Rob, I think it's time for us to switch over to our mailbag. But first, a word from our sponsor. So, Danielle, I had the most embarrassingly like Los Angelino thing happen to me the other day. Oh. Oh no. What happened, Rob? Uh, so I had to fly to Chicago for work. And uh, it's October in Chicago, and it's October in LA. Yeah. I mean, so, like, I should have been prepared. Uh, but I wasn't. Uh, so I got off the plane at O'Hare, uh, wearing the stuff I've been wearing in Los Angeles. So, you know, I had, you know a thin, uh, thin, thin warm-ups and uh, a t-shirt, perfect for flying, perfect for uh, getting on a plane at, oh. at uh, LAX. I was um, going to say, were you wearing like a board shorts and a tank top, you know? Not quite that bad, but, uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> it was like it was like 55 degrees in Chicago with like wind coming straight off the lake and I haven't navigated that city in a while, so I'm sort of mired downtown uh, with my luggage in this t-shirt. Everyone around me is wearing like 
comfy like winter clothes they've got you know like mm. uh, you know uh, wool jackets and everyone looks very chic uh, in the in their in their autumn wear and I'm just like shivering huddling um, oh. but you know you know it wasn't cold what wasn't cold my feet my feet were warm <laughs> and a source of reassurance yeah. and comfort and power uh, during during my darkest hour and I think I have to give a lot of the credit uh, to my quality fall morals uh, from Bombas um, have, I, have I told you have I mentioned Bombas to you Danielle oh I mean they do sound like hell of a company if your feet were comfortable throughout all that strife yeah I mean there was a lot of there was a lot of walking around uh, Chicago city streets but you know with the uh, with the reinforced footbed and uh, and let's not even let's let's not even talk about the honeycomb arch support uh, that really made those miles uh, tick by <laughs> without any undue stress uh, it really you know even though the the winds howling off the lake were really making the rest of me miserable uh, I gotta be honest for my feet it was a day at the beach just like an LA beach and you know I'm looking this up and, and it seems like every time you buy a pair of socks from Bombas they actually donate a pair to the shelter so that the you know folks who are less fortunate than you can also have very comfortable feet no matter what's going on in their lives yeah I mean I know how I know what a big deal it is for you Danielle to like not be a piece of shit um, and like <laughs> it's high in my list. <laughs> it's definitely like you mentioned a few times. Like you know, just get through your day without being a piece of shit. Well, going to Bombas.com <laughs> and ordering socks from from them uh, is a way for you to sort of reduce your shittiness, even as uh, you clad your feet in comfortable and warming extra length long staple cotton. Uh, so you just go to bombas.com slash weekend for 20% off your first order. Wow. Okay, I'm going to go to getbombas.com slash weekend for 20% off and not feeling like a piece of shit. All right, that was a great ad. I, I really liked it. Uh, so now let's go into our mailbag. Our very first letter comes from Joey. And Joey writes, hey, y'all, without preamble... I have major issues with a few lauded releases of the last couple of years and makes it hard to talk to people who really disagree about them. For example, I feel that everything uh, except the environmental design and vocal work in Bioshock Infinite is misguided trash and the entirety of the story, scenario, design, and writing of Metal Gear Solid V is a hot load of garbage, despite its mostly impeccable controls. I have severe foundational issues with these games, so I have a hard time making headway in meaningful discussions because of their Metacritic score and a general acceptance of superiority. How do you approach being a dissenting voice in a medium so deluged in hot reactionary takes? How do you two specifically attempt to keep discourse reasonable and elevated? And what can we all do to contribute to that? Thanks, Rob and Danielle. Keep talking all hot. Joey. Ooh, I don't know if I always... Uh, keep the discourse reasonable and elevated, uh, but <laughs> it does help to, um, it sure helps to, to work with people who are nice and uh, to, you know, kind of uh, be, I, I'm very lucky. I have colleagues who are intelligent, reasonable people. That makes that part of it very, very easy. 
Um, and when folks are being really sort of venomous online, I, you know, say on Twitter or something, I, I try to engage with people on, on some level if they're not being venomous towards me, if they're being venomous, you know, sort of in general. It really is kind of a be honest, uh, speak from the gut, you know, go with your gut reactions, talk about things in a way that, you know, feels very honest and true to you, but you, you don't have to be a dick. I guess that's that's the sort of, you know, very general rule I go by. Like, I think a lot of things are hot garbage, too. I won't sit there and say, well, this is a literal piece of shit. It means nothing and there's no value to this and I hate it. Uh, it's more like, yeah, uh, I think this was poorly made. And, uh, yep, sure hope those uh, developers who probably worked very hard on it and had 10 seconds to do it uh, are okay. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. yeah, you can just be you can just be civil. You know, it, it's it's not terribly difficult to be civil. I don't think. And yeah, it helps. but I, I sort of feel that underlying this is that Joey has a problem with sometimes people are wrong on the internet. Um, <laughs> and like, well, that's a problem for us all. Let me, Joey. <laughs> let me put forth the possibility that <laughs> Joey might actually be part of the problem. And I, and I believe me, I actually like I actually basically am joey so like i'm not i'm not actually pointing fingers here because like i actually went through this bioshock one where like if people want to dig up some of the shit i wrote online like arguing about stuff like i don't know if i was elevating the discourse uh there were a lot of pe there were a lot of people who needed to be told about looking glass and system shock 2 because uh, sure. they just had no context for what bioshock was really doing and that was causing them to overrate the game like a bunch of idiots um it was a great game uh, but the fact is that it was also a retread of a much better game uh, in a lot of ways. Like it was kind of the shot for shot mm. remake with with a different skin on it, um, which was arguably actually, a, a remake of an of another great game. Yeah, pretty like, much. Arguably, uh, like it was the third remake of a really great game, and you know, yeah, and each time, each time, whether or not System Shock One or the two. Remake. Yeah, exactly. Each time it's like, ooh, well, that's that's a few too many systems. <laughs> Each time it gets a little like more washed out, uh, and actually, I think sort of like <laughs> yeah. this is this is uh, like by the time Bioshock Infinite arrives, it's like it's wearing all these skins of other better games. Yeah. Uh, there's the there's the door code uh, moment late in Bioshock Infinite, uh, you know, oh four five one. Uh, you know, the classic looking glass, uh, you know, yeah. call out that everyone now uses. But I was like, yeah, yeah but you at least need a, you at least need a system to, to enter the code or else it's just a button. You pr Like, it's a weird thing. It pissed me <laughs> off. I was like, no, you can't, you don't get to do that. You don't get to make a game like that and then like claim this lineage. Um, which is all to, all to say, uh, <laughs> I don't entirely know because sometimes because sometimes people are are really freaking wrong about things, yeah. Uh, or it feels like they're really freaking th wrong about things, and they're making sort of sweeping statements, and it just feels like they're missing some key context. And really, you just need to make sure they get that context, um, <laughs> both barrels of it, uh, right away, <laughs> so you can correct this error. And I am certainly guilty of yeah. it. Um, and I am absolutely that person who makes those sweeping statements and then needs to be needs to be reined in. Uh, I, I think the the thing to remember is that at the end of the day, like it's just fucking video games, man. Like yes, it's, and it's okay. 
it's okay to disagree. Like, it's all right. We're going to keep living. We're going to keep breathing. Like, it's okay to think something very different. (laughs) Well, and also, like, also you'll increasingly find, like, if you really think about other people's positions, a lot of times you'll also start to come around to them. Like, I can, uh, like, I can now argue both sides of Bioshock Infinite pretty hard. Like, I can, I go back, like, it's a game I think about a lot because, like, on the one hand, there's a lot of things I find that like just absolutely loathsome, um, and God, this this election man, I keep returning to. Uh, I guess the oh, only man. difference between Fitzroy and uh, oh. F- what, what the fuck is that? Finkton. Uh, it's the only difference is how you spell the name. Oh, God, uh, and I just keep returning yeah. to that line. This election, like, and uh, like, it's just such a poisonous, awful, um, like worldview that's betrayed by that line. Um, you know, equivalence Uber Uber always. Uh, but at the same time, then I'll think like, yeah, but there's a lot of beautiful artistry to that game. There's a lot of memorable moments uh, that really stick with you. Uh, there many are many talented of... people in, in one. Yeah, just, oh, I, I agree. I yeah. Agree. Totally. So, I mean, like, this is a game that I sometimes think like, man, maybe I'm just way too hard on that game because like, it was actually really good, but it just wasn't truly like, great and thought-provoking in the way that I expected it to be. But then I can also yeah. say, like, yeah, but the game's worldview was, was fundamentally, like, pretty underdeveloped. Uh, and in terms of, like, you know, overall arc, it's, it's kind of a mess. But the, the, the thing to remember is, like, the great thing about these, the, these discussions and arguments is that you will actually get so much by listening to the people you vehemently disagree with and sort of seeing their point of view. Again, like, this is why Tom Chick is so invaluable, right? Like, yes. if, you, if you want to see somebody who's not afraid to throw bombs but somehow makes you really glad it blew up in your face, uh, like, that's Tom Chick. Like, it's, it's <laughs> even, even stuff he doesn't like, there's an appreciation for where it sits in context. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. So I, I've come to really enjoy the, the the disagreement, but part of that comes with, you're not going to change anyone's minds right away. What you're going to do is inform the discussion a little more with your own perspective and, and offer some things up that other people maybe haven't thought of. Um, yeah. And that can be really cool. I think the reason online discourse can be really bad is like, a lot of times what you find in comment sections, for instance, is like people like for some reason have put stakes on these arguments and that, that takes things to a weird place. Cause then it's not about like exchanging views. It's about like winning and like, there's no winning an argument over like, how do you feel about metal gear solid five? Right. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I'm thinking about all of this and I know I'm, I'm extremely guilty of doing this in the opposite way, much more often than like, well, you're wrong about this thing. I'm much more likely to be like, no, man, why did everybody overlook this beautiful gem? What alien isolation in Donkey Kong Country, Tropical Freeze, best games of 2014. Why did they get the shaft, man? Like, I'm much more likely to, to like, go hard for something and like not understand why people didn't love it. That's my, I'm, I'm so much more on the, on the sort of opposite end of the spectrum than Joey, but in the same way, you know, saying a lot of the same kind of thing. Yeah. How do, how do you people miss this? Yeah. I mean, I've still got like how did a you list, miss it? a yeah. list of people who wronged the Kane and Lynch games, uh, sort of taped to my wall, uh, you know, for, for the day the revolution comes. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think the, the main thing is is that disagreement is exciting. And, and some people, like, 
uh, you get comfortable dismissing because uh, you know you you just realize their lens is so different from yours that there, there's not much to be said. Uh, but but fundamentally, there's there's no real stakes there, so there's there's no reason to get too wound up about it. Uh, our next email comes from. Oh, damn it, Louis. I, I swear to God. like Our, our next email comes from Louis Minivan. I, I'm pretty sure he once sent us a pronunciation guide uh, for his name. A pronunciation guide I have since forgotten. Uh, so so hopefully Sorry, I didn't Louis. butcher that, that too much. Uh, hello, R&D. I periodically have an interest in the famous board game Diplomacy, where seven players representing the great powers of early 20th century Europe Maneuver to try to get control of the continent. As you may know, the game has a huge emphasis on negotiations between players, since each army or fleet uh, all has the same strength. There's relatively few of them, and the game has no dice or other random rolls. In short, players cannot overpower their opponents only through built-in mechanics uh, or, or skillful tactics. One cannot survive without negotiating between each turn for alliances, and one cannot achieve a solo win without betraying allies. As a result, Diplomacy is a rather intense game, both in its play-by-email, uh, formerly postal, or face-to-face form. Is there any multiplayer computer game similarly built on human interactions rather than mechanics? I know Solium Infernum had a bit of that flavor, though the negotiations were distilled down to a set of mechanics, uh, but I can't seem to think of any. Should it be something that game developers explore? I... Well... Well, you've been playing something like this. Yeah. Or at least you were. <laughs> yeah, and, and really, like, screw that game, man. Um, no, like, yeah. so I've been, play- I've been playing Subterfuge. <laughs> uh, and yeah. so, like, Subterfuge, like, Neptune's... Neptune's ride. Pride, yeah. I was getting confused with Neptune's Bounty, uh, the level yes. from Bioshock. Bioshock is Neptune's in your brain. Pride, yeah. <laughs> uh is a similar sort of game. Uh, Neptune's Pride is basically diplomacy, uh, real time. We talked about it on the show last, uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. So subterfuge is similarly deterministic in that there's no like random dice rolls or anything like that. There's certain characters who can like provide power ups, uh, but ultimately it comes down to uh, alliances and negotiation. It is an interesting thing to explore, uh, and it's something that I think has been explored pretty successfully on a on a single player basis by like Paradox. Uh, and Paradox games are amazing multiplayer games if you can find people c- to commit to them. Uh, March of the Eagles is not a great strategy game from Paradox, but like it is absolutely like it sings in the uh, in the multiplayer format because it's it's all about like who can do what for whom at any given moment. Uh, what I encountered with Subterfuge is that eventually negotiation gets a little tiresome. Uh, it's the thing about diplomacy is, like, diplomacy was a night. You know, it's like a night of intensive discussion. Uh, a game like Subterfuge is is really long form. It's a lot of, like, day-to-day negotiation and trust building. And what you realize is a lot of that is fun at first. And then you get real sick of having to, like, repeatedly negotiate, like, the demilitarization of a border so you can trust, trust each other. Um, and eventually you just get sort of, like just weirdly resentful about like some of the requests you're getting, right? It's it's like nobody can trust each other. Everything sort of has to be these these reciprocal agreements. Um Yeah, so it just it it it's it's a difficult thing because like a little bit of that actually goes a long way. And I was surprised by 
how quickly I sort of hit a point with subterfuge where I was a little exhausted of the uh, of the constant constant texting back and forth, and there's no way out of that because ultimately the game is is sort of predetermined by weight of numbers, so you have to play that diplomatic game because you certainly can't like think your way out of uh, out of your position. Yeah, I mean that all. God, I've never played anything like it, so I was happy you were here for that question, Rob. Very happy. We have a, a letter here from Ian J, who says, Hello, Weekenders. Last episode, Danielle commented on how much she loves the feel of being in-game in New Orleans in Mafia 3. Experiencing an architecturally interesting place in a game sparked her imagination. With games like Mafia 3, Sleeping Dogs, and the Assassin's Creed franchise, Placing players in aesthetically interesting real-world locations is happening more often in a convincing way. Has a game or other piece of media ever inspired you to travel to a place to experience firsthand? I personally have wanted to make the pilgrimage to Savannah ever since I first read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil in high school. Where have you been or would like to go to? Because a piece of fiction uh, drove in it, to, uh, drove you to see it for yourself. Have a good weekend, ENJ. Well, Ian, I'm going to tell you the dorkiest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> when baby Danielle played Shenmue for the first time, when I when I played that game, I definitely, you know, I wasn't really an anime kid, not the way a lot of people I know are. So I, I, I was always sort of interested in Japanese culture because I played, you know, I played a lot of video games. I played a lot of Nintendo games, and it was always sort of like, wow, that's the place where Nintendo games come from. And I, I did martial arts, and so I was always sort of generally interested in uh, going to Japan. But playing Shenmue as a dork, uh, I definitely fell in love with sort of the architecture of, like, a smaller town in Japan. And just how completely different it looked to me. The, the way the buildings looked, the way everything was structured, the way everything was very clean-looking with very, very aesthetically pleasing lines... Um, and I, and I really, <laughs> at that point, I was like, I need to go to Japan one day. And I didn't go until I was, you know, 31 and it was still magical and wonderful. And I, and I kind of had those feelings of like, yeah, I remember playing Shenmue and feeling like, wow, this place actually looks very different and very interesting and very, very beautiful. And I'm very excited to be here. I also had that sort of experience with Assassin's Creed, but I had it the opposite way. Um, so I went to Italy when I was like 23. Uh, my sister was uh, traveling abroad there and she was staying in Bologna actually, which is not a city you hear a ton about uh, in Italy, but we went to Venice, we went to Florence, uh, you know, we went to, uh, we went to several smaller towns as well. And I definitely kind of playing Assassin's Creed 2 way later. I actually played it way after it came out. I played that game like in uh, 2012, 2013, uh, playing way later. I was like, wow, this is a this feels cool. This actually feels like they, they kind of got the spirit of those of those cities, right? So I definitely had that moment, uh, the, the sort of cliche moment with Assassin's Creed as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think... So the, 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 the thing is, I there's a lot of places I want to visit because of games and fiction, but, like, I also haven't, right? Like, in, in, including, like, things that are almost excusable, like... Um, I've driven by Gettysburg a couple times and been within a few miles of it and nope, I had somewhere else to go. Uh, despite the fact that like, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> like this is like both from like books, uh, the, the, you know, the movie, uh, plus God knows how many war games, uh, this is like, 
this is ground I know really, really well, or at least think I do, but I've never seen the real article, right? It's it's like, yeah. you know, you see, like it's, uh, it, it, it's 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 like you know being the world's foremost authority on like sailing ships, but you've never been on the ocean or something like that. That's oh, kind totally. of how it feels yeah. <laughs> uh, with, with something like that. Uh, but a lot of times what fiction inspires in me is like excitement for places that no longer exist. Like mm. I have this obsession with post-war Berlin. Like and I, I don't mean like yeah. general post-war Berlin, but like I think the period from like 1945 to like 1948, 49 is such a fascinating one. You know, the Cold War is starting to harden, but, like, there's still this facade of, like, we can, like, carve up this this capital and, and hold it equally among the, the allies and all work together. And it's, like, still a major city, but it's also bombed to shit, and the only people running it are like these, like, military, uh, like, prefects, uh, kind of. That stuff fascinates me. But the thing is, like, so does that make me excited to go to Berlin? Not really, because, like, the thing that I really, like, want to see is gone. Like, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so things, like, so my way to access things like that are, are through books and, you know, through movies like uh, The Third Man, which is set in Vienna, but uh, is a similar sort of uh, situation. So, in a weird way, like, what those, what, what a lot of fiction tends to inspire more than, like, travel is more study of things that no longer are. Um, yeah. I love, like, perfect example, maybe this quintessential example, uh, like, I am a classicist, like, I, I, I studied, like, Greek and Latin in college, I, I wrote a, a pretty long thesis on the, uh, Peloponnesian War, um, I don't really have that much interest in ever, like, visiting Greece. Sure, Because, sure. like, it's just not... It's it's a totally different world than the one that I'm really excited about. So like, what tends to get me more excited is is like a you know a new a new landmark edition of of a Greek historian, um, or you know like the um, the hegemony series, letting me sort of you know play strategy games set in that in that world. Uh, but in terms of like travel, a lot of times you know the worlds I really want to visit are you know, have, uh, you know, because of the, the march of time, uh, have receded into the past just as much as like hypothetical future worlds have yet to be. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. I agree. I, I sort of have always, always, always wanted to visit San Francisco from times past, like visit the San Francisco of the, of the seventies when, you know, the sort of queer rights movement was really getting going and, and, actually know the sort of radicals who were there. And I've met some of these people, you know, I was lucky enough to meet some of the people. I met the, you know, the person who made the, uh, basically made the rainbow flag the symbol that it is. And I, I've met some of the sort of sisters of perpetual indulgence who were there at the, you know, at the time, or at least in the eighties and, and were there for, you know, uh, the AIDS crisis and, and really organizing and really making, you know, uh, LGBT rights a thing that we even, care to have any you know that we even have because of them and like going to san francisco now is a pretty stark reminder of well that's not that anymore uh <laughs> and it's it i appreciate that i feel it, it is a little sad sometimes to think like oh yeah there was another world here and and it's kind of gone now and 
and we can kind of peek and 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 uh, you know sort of claw at the the edges of what's left there, but it's never it's never quite the same. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is. Do you ever see Zodiac? Yes. Yes. It's so oh weird to see, like, oh yeah, San Francisco is just like another smallish American city, like full of working yeah. class people. It is such yeah. a bizarre thing to think, like. It was the same geographic place. Like, it was as desirable then as it is now. But, like, nothing was there relatively, relative now. Yeah. It was a different um, universe, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. I, I shouldn't say nothing was there. I shouldn't, because that, that, that somehow implies that, like, there's this, like, massive, wonderful economy that's, like, cr- like put San Francisco on the map. Uh, there were other things there. There were other industries there. There were more traditional sorts of, but it was, it was, a, it was a less connected uh, economic center um yeah. and it no longer had this it, it was no longer like a company town for it, it was not yet to be a company town for uh like tech companies um yeah. and what the sort of the tragedy of san francisco is those two things turned out to not be compatible uh at least <laughs> insofar as the way the city was was constructed um all right our last uh our last letter comes from patrick hi robin danielle hi. I was recently reading some people talk about Burnout Paradise, and as my deep personal dislike for that game came welling up inside me, I began to wonder, and perhaps have always wondered, do I hate that game so much because I dislike open world design for racers, or is it because I hated it as a Burnout game? Now, some background. Me and my brother and some of my friends played an absolute ton of all the Burnout games up to that point, though for me, the height of my fever was at three. I think what I loved about all those games was the sense of speed, the hectic pace, the very easy handling of the cars, and the stages that were basically designed as car gauntlets you had to dodge around. But when I played Paradise, I was crushed by the experience after a very short amount of time with it and found myself deeply hating my experience and the game. (laughs) Uh, Things are about to get dark. Uh, I think what I deeply disliked was the need to check the minimap in order to drive. Gone was the sense of just being able to hone in on the feeling of the car and the car gauntlet in front of you in order to just enjoy the driving. It was antithetical to everything I liked about those games and killed any desire I had to play that game and, indeed, any racing game. Whoa! Burnout Paradise killed an entire genre for Patrick. That's pretty bad. But to come back to the question, do I hate Burnout Paradise because I hate open-world driving or because it killed a franchise I used to love. I've never finished a GTA game, uh, at least partly because I hate the driving in those games, and being able to skip it very often in Saints Row is why I've enjoyed those, I believe. But on the other hand, uh, that I believed Paradise to be the destruction of a franchise I used to love makes it hard for me to think about that game rationally outside of that. So, how would you go about unpacking why you dislike something while attempting to disentangle your thoughts about the game itself from your franchise expectations oh there's so much here uh first i think didn't we talk about burnout paradise early in the life of the show we did yes um, uh, very positively if i recall correctly. right but I, but I did refer to this argument uh and i think rowan kaiser mm-hmm. laid it out pretty well and i think three was his reference point as well is that mm. if three is sort of the zenith of of the original sort of burnout design template burnout paradise kind of shreds it and burnout so paradise so burnout 3 was kind of like all killer no filler right but the nature of open world design is always like there's a ton of filler um yeah. and the weird thing is burnout paradise i think is the only racer 
like this that that I've really enjoyed, with the exception of Driver. But Driver's doing some other really weird things, uh, which, yeah, which I yeah. really, which I really, really enjoy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so so as far as the as Burnout goes, I think this is this is a totally like valid reaction, and uh, it's so interesting to me because I never played any of the other Burnout games. So for me, Paradise is just like. Uh, it was a breath of fresh air at the time, and then it's still better than any other like open world racer that that basically followed. And uh, even even Criterion couldn't really cap recapture what they what they'd achieved with Paradise. Uh, but to the other point about like trying to separate your feelings about like that that sort of expectations thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you're supposed to be a burnout game, and instead I got you. Uh, that's a that's a really <laughs> difficult thing, and I, and I'm I'm not good at that either. Like I got to be honest. Like I think one reason um, I tend to be really hard on forex games is there's a few things those things tend to return to again and again that they just like that they just can't seem to stay away from. Like unit customization is always this this terrible red herring. It's this. It's this garbage mechanic that's in so many of these games, and so sometimes I like look back at um, you know games like uh, Master of Orion with ship customization, and uh, you know games like Ascendancy from that era, and I'm like, you ruined it because you you put this poison <laughs> in the foundation of the genre, and because the forex genre largely exists as a monument to fan service over and over again. Um, we have to see this shit time after time, and nobody's really figured out a great way to make it work. Um, but the thing is, I say it, I put it that way, and that's like a really incendiary way of putting it. Um, <laughs> and I have to account for that because, like, at this point, like the sight of a ship customization screen just makes me want to like start like smashing things. <laughs> because I'm so like it's it's just I'm so attuned to it now. It's confirmation bias, uh, and I can't separate it from like my frustration with like the overall staleness of a lot of ideas kicking around in the forex space. Um, so yeah, that that sort of unpacking and, and decoupling of uh, of of expectations and, and reactions is something that like I think is enormously important. But like, man, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I feel like listeners of this show heard us doing that with magical realism pretty recently, <laughs> you know, at least attempting to sort of unpack and then, you know, listen to some some folks who maybe like Nyev, who, you know, schooled us at least on, on sort of one aspect of, of something. And like, you know, it's not exactly the same, obviously, as, as sort of having very specific expectations for a particular game, but... But the process of disentangling yourself from something that you dislike and and sort of breaking that down and unpacking why you dislike something is really, I think it's an enormously important exercise and it's always messy and it's always a little crappy and you never quite get, I don't think you ever get quite 100% there, but it's, I, I do actually think it's pretty important to do in general. Like it's- Oh, it's like a crucial- It's not like- a bad thing to know, yeah. Yeah. Like mental health wise too, it's like being yes. able to sort of track where your feelings and reactions are coming from, and like where, like what you actually want. Uh, yeah, huge. And man, yeah. like like doing that with works of uh, like creative works is a really great dry run uh, with no stakes. 
uh, for, the, for the kind <laughs> of stuff that I think you, you have to do on a daily basis, uh, sort of as a, as a well-adjusted adult. Um, yeah. But the question, I guess, that, that I sort of arrive at is like, is the goal here to try and decouple that so effectively that you can enjoy burnout paradise for what it is rather than castigate it for not being burnout for. Yeah. I don't know so much that you have to enjoy it, but it is good to know why you don't like it. But that would be my sort of pat answer there. No. But, but it, it, it is also like maybe Joey, sorry, not Joey. Maybe Patrick does want to enjoy burnout. Maybe Patrick wants to have a, a reunion with this game and, and sort of like uh, stop feeling this way about it. And that's, that's fair as well. I DJ Atomica uh, is waiting for you, Patrick. Yeah. He's still back there. <laughs> He's always going to be there for you, Patrick, yeah. no matter what. Happens. You can never escape him. Um, I, I think, <laughs> you know, something else though is like, I feel like the arcade racer just kind of jumped the shark around that time too. Like they don't exist. Yeah. anymore. They really don't. Yeah. Uh, they practically don't. There's one I can think of uh, that was amazing, and it's called Road Redemption, and that came out, God, it was like an early access game last year, maybe, and it was awesome, and it was like a goofy motorcycle rally, ridiculous, uh, very arcadey game, but that's honestly the only one I can think of in the last, you know, several years that was actually like very purposely arcadey and, and fun and good, so it's... Right, and like the yeah, only... What the hell? <laughs> yeah, and everything else is following the burnout model and doing a really bad job of it. So, like, the the whole, like, arcade racer that, like, Burnout 3 represented and, like, were a lot of the racing games I grew up playing on, like, SNES, those are all gone. And, like, now it's, now it's like, genuine garbage like the crew um, or the <laughs> completely, like, lacking in identity need for speed. Uh, which it feels like every every year now, every couple of years, it's like, no, okay, we get it. We've heard you. Now we think you're really going to enjoy what we've got cooking next. Yeah. Um, it's another open world Need for Speed game. Hope you're excited. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a little sad. It's, it's a genre I love. You know, the, the San Francisco Rush games? And God help me, but even I even had a lot of fun with, like, the cruising game. You know, cruising USA, cruising world, and, like, actual arcades. I miss those goofy fucking 90s <laughs> arcade racers. They were... A lot of fun, and one would think, you know, mechanically speaking, fairly simple to do in a, you know, in a in a three D engine. Like it, it but but they're not the hardest big. thing to make, right? Yeah. This is sort of going back to our earlier discussion. Is like, yeah, it's that that end, that open world thing is like that's sort of what you, like you can promise like all this replayability and and activity yeah. and and all this stuff, yeah. but it would seem so old fashioned to be like, look, it's just going to be one point A to point B race after another, but they're going to be awesome. Uh, and I think yeah. I would enjoy that. And I think I would want it. I wonder if it would like sell itself well. Yeah. But that's true. Well, you know, maybe there's enough nostalgia in people like us. If there was enough nostalgia for certain other older styles of games, maybe yeah. crazy hey, Uber indie, indie developers. That'll be, that'll yeah. be a great game. Crazy Uber. That's that's the new one. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Crazy Uber, the game I'm making next week at a game jam. 
Uh, I think on that note, it's probably time for us to talk about our weekend projects. Rob, what is something you have been enjoying so much lately? Um, <clears throat> that's a great question, Danielle. <laughs> no, yeah. so so I've just I've had one of those weeks where like it's all been like work and travel. Uh, so I guess sure, like sure. I mean, my punt would be like I've enjoyed the city of Chicago. Chicago was fantastic. <laughs> I was in I was in Chicago for uh, a few days and uh, covering uh, League of Legends uh, World Championships, and it was fantastic. Um, it like Chicago was is a truly great American city. It's home, uh, and and visiting that was really cool. But I did not have a lot of time to like uh, in, enjoy uh, much in the way of like. Much in the way of culture, I guess the thing I would say right now that I'm that I'm into is um, so I'm reading Walter Mosley's uh, Devil in a Blue Dress. Oh, and because uh, I just I've, I've sort of missed uh, detective detective fiction, yeah. and I had forgotten like how like sort of exciting and 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 fresh this book felt because uh, I, I sort of feel like the Easy Rollins series kind of lost its way a little bit. Um, a lot of series do, and I, I think this one was was no different. But, but Devil in a Blue Dress is a really great, um, you know. So, so the premise is like Easy Rollins is a uh, a, a black GI home from the war. Um, <clears throat> he's sort of carved out a small independent life for himself in Los Angeles, and. Uh, is mostly just trying to set up barricades between himself and uh, white supremacy, right? Like he just wants to own his own house rather than rent it. He just wants to have a job where he doesn't have to like kowtow to some powerful like white boss. Um, And he ends up getting roped into PI work. And from there, it's a really standard uh, modern uh, like noir uh, private eye novel. Uh, but it's it's really well told. Uh, it it has this it has this wonderful voice, um, sort of southern inflected, and uh, it, it really sort of captures a a very different place and time uh, from the point of view of a detective who uh, you know every PI sort of a sort of a trope of the genre is every PI gets his ass kicked by the cops. Like cops and PIs don't get along, <laughs> but here it's sort of tinged with this like. The cops could just could genuinely. This is L.A. in the '40s. Like they could just kill him, and that sort of threat hangs over everything. Uh, the other thing is that uh, is something else that is going on in the Easy Rollins novels, and I think it happened a lot in later uh, like Private Eye novels that started popping up in like the '80s and '90s. Uh, so your classic PI was sort of a one man band. You know, like, you know, Marlo didn't have partners, Spade didn't have partners, um, uh, Spencer didn't have partners. So, like, they were all all kind of, you know, these, you know, these these, uh, atomized individuals, uh, you know, and part of those, part of that genre is is a sense of alienation and otherness uh, from general society. Like, the PI lives outside society, uh, and he sort of deals with its ills. Um, In Devil in a Blue Dress... Uh, Easy does have sort of a partner character, um, character named Mouse, uh, who uh, I think was played by Don Cheadle when they when they made a movie out of it. Uh, oh, but wow. Mouse yeah. is is really interesting because Mouse is 
like pure malice. Um, and this is a this is a thing that popped up in a lot of PI novels at that time, which was like this desire to. I think maybe it was a response to like maybe a desire to make these novels a little more violent. Like, you know, again, a mm. lot of your old PI novels, there's not a ton of like massive shootouts, right? This is why like Red Harvest is such a weird book from Dashiell Hammett because yeah, his books can be mm. bloody at times, but like Red Harvest is like a John Woo movie or something like that. It yeah, really is yeah. a disco- it's a weird thing uh, in that place and time. Great novel, but I, I think in this in this era that like that Mosley's working in. And a lot of PI, PI fiction writers uh, of that era, uh, there's this desire to sort of amp up the violence and also like sort of let the let the PI hit back right in the in the books of like the 40s and 50s. The PI gets his ass kicked, and that's kind of it. There's no pushback, you know. Like uh, it's you know Chinatown sums that up, right? Like just you know walk away, you know let it go, Jake. It's Chinatown. Yeah. That's kind of what the PI has to do. These these newer novels want to sort of give you some catharsis of like you know. How about we just like kill these people? Um, but how do you do that <laughs> without sort of compromising the main character of the series? And the solution is characters like Mouse or like Joe Pike in the Robert Cry novels, uh, like Bubba in the uh, Dennis Lehane, Kenzie Genero uh, novels. Um, but Mouse is, I think, maybe the the most interesting uh, of of the bunch of this archetypes because Mouse is like criminally insane. Like has ab- like completely amoral, perfectly amoral. Has no understanding of why it freaks Easy out that that Mouse can kill a man as easy as sit down and drink with him. They are the same. They they carry the same weight with Mouse, and so he's the character who gets called in whenever like shit's about to get real, and Easy needs like some real firepower at his back. Because uh, because mouse is mouse is a good killer, uh, and so it's sort of fascinating to go back and look at this book where like this is one of the first I think really successful instances of this the use of this device, and I think it's successful because like mouse isn't just a cipher like the series does not shrink away from the fact that like a key part of Easy's success is that he has this like dark doppelganger. Uh, at, at his back, um, and so it's another interesting element uh, in the background of this novel, which is which is in other ways a very traditional PI novel set in the '40s, uh, but then it has this really uh, violent and chaotic uh, modern inter- interjection of this other character uh, that aligns with very different sensibilities, and uh, it, it makes it a really memorable. And, and really great uh, private eye novel. So I guess that's what I'm into uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, sorry to give you a little dissertation on uh, on, on private no, eye novels. No, it's great. Uh, but uh, I think it's 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 a series. Not maybe not, maybe not the series, but certainly Devil in a Blue Dress is is well worth reading. Uh, and, and I highly highly recommend it. I am very interested in that. I I have not read many PI novels in my life, but I. I'm a lifelong lover of film noir and the the sort of tragic PI figure in a lot of uh, noir. So that was a very good place for me to start, I think. That sounds pretty awesome. Um, You know, I'm going to briefly say I'm also really enjoying the city of Seattle. Since you enjoyed Chicago so much, I I will say Seattle is... Holy shit, the city is beautiful. It's It's amazing, especially in fall. You know, visiting in late October, the... The trees are all incredible, and the foliage is 
really, really pretty. And in it, oh my God, it's living in New York. You, you, <laughs> you do miss trees a little bit. Like we have parks, but it's, it's nothing like, like here where, you know, there's just beautiful roads with beautiful trees and you can kind of see the ocean and you can kind of see the mountains in the background. I'm like, oh man, that's good. That's really good. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a cool town too. It's just a cool place. So I'm enjoying Seattle, but I'm also enjoying, uh, I watched a cool and interesting martial arts movie last night that I, I think is worth an endorsement. Uh, the movie's called Ip Man, I-P, uh, you know, okay, space, yep. M-A-N. And uh, it's a Hong Kong movie. So it's a modern Hong Kong uh, sort of action martial arts movie. It's around 2008. And actually, they've made a few of these. I don't know if the rest are any good. Uh, and it's on Netflix streaming, so you can just go watch it. Uh, but it's kind of a, a biographical movie about a real person, a, a sort of a Wing Chun master, an incredible, incredibly talented martial artist. Uh, it takes place in sort of the the town, a smaller town of, of Foshan uh, in China in the 30s. And this guy is just like the very best in the whole in the whole town and probably the whole damn world. He's just such a successful and incredible martial artist, so talented and so humble. And, you know, very much the, the sort of martial arts uh, ideal of being a very calm person, a very, you know, very honorable, like when somebody... Uh, gets really embarrassed that he beat them, he'll he'll kind of say, no, you know, whatever, didn't really happen. He's he's very, like, relaxed and doesn't care that much about reputation. He cares more about, you know, being honorable and, and that sort of stuff. So it's a very, very classic kind of martial arts movie, uh, definitely inspired from real events, and it has all those wonderful, wonderful sort of uh, wire choreography uh, that the best Hong Kong movies have those those incredible kicks and and punches in the air and all that like amazing amazing stuff, uh, just very very enjoyable. You know, very um. You know, you're watching it and you kind of know where it's going. Like it's very you know it's a nationalist piece about you know uh, Chinese uh, folks who were you know were strong even under the the Japanese uh, you know the the terrors honestly of sort of the Japanese occupation of China. Uh, and, and, you know, somebody who is strong and honorable even under that, uh, that regime. That's, it's sort of a, you know, simple narrative, but, but beautifully shot, incredible choreography, incredible cinematography. Uh, just a really, really, really good, you know, martial arts movie. And it's been a long time since I've seen something like that. So I really, really enjoyed watching that. So it's Ip Man. It's on Netflix right now. You can go watch it if you're interested at all in those good, good old, you know, wire work kind of, Stunts. It's really awesome. Okay. So I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was uh, actually produced by myself again, so if it sounds not as good as when Chris does it, it's my fault. And it's hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. <laughs> to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And folks, we really, really appreciate you listening and would love it if you could take a moment to rate us on iTunes. That helps us so much. And if you could tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell your prison cellmate, tell your dog, whoever it is that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend, if you could tell them about it and let them know about us, we would appreciate that. That means the world to us. And we thank you so much uh, for listening and for spreading the word. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo. Wishing you the finest of idle weekends.